It sure feels like spring. You know, it's funny. I always, the last few years, I've made a mental note when spring officially hits to be aware of it. And I'm always aware that it's coming and it's starting to feel that way. But I'm always like, oh, I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to be totally aware of the fact that the equinox is here. To the point where, it's funny, to the point where I even forget whether it's called an equinox, whether it's called a solstice. The solstice is burned into your brain, but at least where I live, people don't really talk about the equinox much. The equinox just kind of comes and goes. Whereas the solstice is something that people celebrate. They call a lot of attention to it. I've known people to have summer solstice parties the first day of summer, which is always associated with school here because the, the school schedules in this part of the state or in this part of the country, school gets out right before or right around the time that the summer solstice hits. So I think that's why that has such a, a strong association. The first day of summer, you're out of school and all that. And then winter, it's the holidays. But people tend to ritualize those a lot more too. You know, people tend to ritualize the first day of summer or the first day of winter, whereas fall, you know, as, as I think people pay a little more attention to fall, but spring is totally glossed over. Meanwhile, it's important, you know, meanwhile, the, the, especially in this area, the shift from winter to, to spring is really important. People haven't gotten much sunlight. There's been a ton of rain. It's been just cold enough to keep you inside. So you'd think it would be a bigger deal, but it's not. And sure enough, even though I make a mental note, like as soon as March hits, I'm like, oh, this year I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to pay attention to the 20, whatever. I think this, this year it was the 20th. Two days ago, I just found that I just found out we're two days into spring today. But I always miss the actual day. I'm never paying attention to the actual day. And uh, what's uh, what's funny about that too is uh, is that it is a distinct feeling. Like you know when spring hits. Like, I start to notice flowers blooming. I start to notice just that little shift, that smell and everything. So, it's... But, you know, that's, that's the funny thing about it is... It's always, like, the 21st. It's always, like, the 20th or 21st. Which is an odd day. Even though it's always that part of the month. It's kind of funny to me that... It's, an, it's, it's not the 1st. It's not the 31st. With that Gregorian calendar, the great Gregorian calendar. It's just funny how that's, it's, you know, the calendar isn't based on that. The calendar isn't based on the changing of the season. And how that was decided, I've got no idea. How it was decided that on this day of this month, it is officially the new season. Because the seasons are way more of a, there's something you feel. Like, sometimes it feels like winter earlier. Usually here, even though winter's not until December 21st, usually here I'm in the winter mindset by mid-November. As soon as that chill hits the air, as soon as 
the sky starts getting darker. I'm like, oh, it's winter. By the time December, late December hits, it's already been winter for a month. Spring, though, it really doesn't start to feel like spring until it does officially hit that date. But again, it's a feel thing. Like, we're two days into spring, and as far as I'm concerned, today's the first day. Because I went out and uh, I was wearing a hoodie and gloves, and I, just, I had to take them off. First day where I've walked and I've been like, oh wow, like I, I need to take off my hoodie and gloves immediately. And uh, I think that kind of signifies it. You know, if you find yourself too warm for a hoodie and gloves, I don't think it's winter anymore. And it's needed. Because it does make me feel hopeful. That light and that sun and just that little, that slightly better weather. It's been a dark, dark winter for me. It's been one of the, I mean, easily the darkest winter I've ever had in every possible way. You know, just psychologically, it's felt very dark. Felt like it was getting darker earlier in the day, too, and staying darker. Even though that's a normal part of winter, it felt like it was coming on even stronger this year. But also the other day, I finished reading the Old Testament, and now I'm on to the New. Out with the Old Testament, in with the New Testament. And... Uh, just made me realize how long I, how long this reading has been going because I, I read a chapter from the Bible every morning and the chapters are very short. I just I, I made it a point like when I started rereading it two and a half years ago, which is crazy. Yeah, it was about two and a half years ago because in 2018 I read the entire Bible front to back in the span of about a month and that was intense. I was in the process of moving out of my house of seven and a half years, and I, I just I found a Bible in a in a uh, like a lending library, and I was like, yeah, I should read the Bible. I should finally get around to reading the entire Bible. I don't I don't feel like I've really had the human experience unless I can say I've read the Bible, and so I, I read it a ton every night. Pretty much any time I had some downtime, I was reading it as much as possible, as much as I could take in. And when you do that too, you end up glossing over a lot. And that's true for even just reading a chapter at a time, especially the Old Testament. There's so much that you just kind of gloss over. But for whatever reason, as a discipline, I find it important to do that. Even if you're not absorbing everything that it's communicating and saying, or maybe you don't even need to, but I think there's some value sometimes to just going through the motions. It's like meditation as well. You know, those days where you don't feel like you're in the mood to meditate and you do it anyway, yet you don't get into it. You still feel like you shouldn't be doing it or you can't do it in that moment. Sometimes that's an even better time to do it because you're maintaining the discipline. And you're not always going to feel it. You're not always going to be able to execute, I guess you could say. Even when you're just sitting there. And I was actually reading a little excerpt from a book about a woman who used to live in my area. 
up by Seattle. And she, and she talked about going to a meditation workshop. I've never been to anything like that. I've never meditated with a group of people or even, even a single other person. I don't think I've ever been in the same room as another person when I'm meditating. But, uh, you know, she talked about going to this meditation workshop and how they, they walked them through just breathing and counting. And they did it for five minutes and she was talking about how anxious she was and how when she actually tried it with this group, how her mind went all those usual places, planning her outfit for the next day. Because I, I noticed that when I first started trying it, this is very common where you do think, uh, it, it's a joke, but it's also true, where you think about your grocery list. Like your mind goes to all of these practical things you need to do. It's not even that your mind wanders to the, the most anxiety-provoking subjects, although that can happen. You'll, you'll kind of start thinking about just practical things that you have to do. And the grocery list one is big. A lot of people have reported that, that their mind goes to their grocery list. This woman's account was very similar. She was thinking about just things on her list of to-do, you know, unimportant things. And she said at the end of that five minutes, it was just, it took forever and it was way too much. But you do have breakthroughs, and that's what got me into meditation, is just having breakthroughs. But something like reading the Bible, I think, is similar in a certain way. Where you might read a chapter every day, and it's a short chapter, but it's just, it's a lot to take in. And you and a lot of it's esoteric, a lot of it's weird, a lot of it's archaic. It's not, it's not like every sentence of the Bible is some spiritual epiphany waiting to be unpacked. But just being in the practice of that and taking it in is, I, I believe it's important if you're, if you're wanting to do that. Not that everybody needs to do it, but if you're wanting to do that, I think having some level of commitment to it is good. But yeah, two and a half years ago, I started rereading it. And I, well, I should add too, it's like when I read it the first time front to back in about a month, I finished it on Halloween day. And I was... That was the last day I had the keys to my old house. And so I, I read the last of it while sitting on the floor of a completely empty house, which was surreal, and it felt perfect. And I kind of planned it that way, kind of not. Half conscious, half conscious of it, half not. And, uh... Yeah, but two and a half years ago, I decided to reread it. It's been it's been a long read. I just it's it's weird to think about everything that's happened in that span of time. And then I've had it in my mind all along that like, oh, it will feel kind of like a, a ray of light, a burst of light when I finally reach the New Testament. That's kind of what it is. The New Testament's more readable. It's more familiar, even if you've never read the Bible. A lot of the stuff that you've probably heard comes from the New Testament. I mean, Jesus doesn't show up until then. You know, Jesus doesn't show up until the, the New Testament. And that's something that's funny about the Bible is most of the quotations, most of the material you've heard is the obvious stuff. And that's true for the Old Testament as well, where reading that, like 90% of what I knew about the Bible came from Genesis. 
Like I was reading Genesis and I was like, oh, this this is everything I know. Nobody quotes anything else. And I mean, how many people have only read Genesis too? How many Christians have only read Genesis? And it's it's familiar, it's easy, it's important. And the same goes for other quotations too, though. You know, a lot of those Bible verses that you hear everywhere, they're in the most obvious sections. Like people don't, most people don't dig into the the obscure. I'm sure they're like me and that their eyes probably gloss over. And unless they're a biblical scholar or they have some reason to know it, they're not gonna go for the obscure quotation, the obscure verse. The obscure verse. Hey, my band is playing uh, at the fair. We're called the obscure verse. But yeah, no, reaching the New Testament, like seeing those words, like finishing a chapter and then looking at the, the next page or whatever it was and seeing New Testament, I'm just like, wow, this is wild. Because there are some days where I've read maybe three. You know, I do things in threes a lot of the time. So if I'm not going to read one chapter on occasion, a few times, maybe I'll read three in a row if I feel like it. But for the most part, on a schedule of one chapter a day, and with the three thing, there are days, no doubt, where I haven't read anything. It's not like I've read a verse every single day. So, you know, the way it works out is, you know, reading a, a chapter a day has taken me about two and a half years. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy to measure that out. To be reading something consistently, slowly, for two and a half years. But it does feel kind of perfect. It does feel right that spring hit right as I started reading the New Testament. Those two things feel similar to me. The feeling is similar. And I'm curious what I'll get out of the New Testament this time, because when I read it before, by the time I reached that, I'd done so much reading. Like, reading the entire Bible in the span of a month, I can't believe... I can't, I can't even imagine sitting there now and reading as much of the Old Testament in one sitting as I did. That's insane to me. And so by the time I got to the New Testament, I really was, I was trying to get through it. I was definitely trying to get through it. And so now that I'm reading more patiently, this round is more patient, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, reading a, a chapter of the New Testament at a time, hmm, I'll be curious what I absorb this time. I don't, and I don't, I don't expect anything. You know, you can't expect anything. It's a process. And when I finished it on Halloween Day 2018, it's not like an angel appeared in the room with me. But it did feel significant. It did feel like the conclusion of a ritual. But I'm just looking to find motivation right now. You know, that's something I'm very aware of, is that I don't feel very connected to uh, any of my interests, any of the things that I used to find motivation in. And it's, it's an interesting thing, because it just feels like a total disconnect. 
and it feels like it's been coming for a long time. I feel that way when I look at records and CDs, art books, things that used to matter to me, objects that used to matter. And in many ways, I've known that they have, it's not that they haven't mattered, but it's like I've known that those aren't an important part of my life for a long time. And I do, I enjoy the idea of having nothing. Not on an ascetic level, not to be an ascetic who deprives himself, but the idea of removing things from my life and then not replacing them is very foreign because we do so much of that. You know, so much of what we do throughout our lives, especially when you're my age and uh, from my generation in the world has, has been the way it's been. When the culture has been its way, the way it's been, it's like when you're a teenager, you're into things and then you kind of replace those things with something else. You go through phases. And some people do that in other ways. Like some people get into a career or a family. They have kids. And I, I wouldn't say that that's the same as just being interested in something, but it matters to you. I don't think I'm trivializing something like starting a family by comparing it to just being interested in subjects or interest or just having interests. Because I think those interests, if you're like me, gave you meaning. They gave you something to do. They gave you purpose. It wasn't just superficial. So for many people, you know, they replace those things with something that's more important like a family, or in some cases a career, depending on how much you actually care about it. But I'm very interested in the idea of shedding things without replacing them, because it's been built into us to do that. You know, and that facilitates the process. Like, oh, I'm not into that anymore, I'm into this. I don't do that anymore. I do this. I've replaced it. I've exchanged it. There's this exchange that goes on. And I think it's scary to think about not exchanging your interests, to not exchange your focus, because you don't know what to do with yourself. I mean, I find myself with that feeling often lately, where if I'm done with everything I need to do for the day too early in the night, I find myself going, well, wait a second, wait a second, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with myself? I have an extra two hours because I'm done with everything. And that's a sweet spot right there. That's a luxury. It's a, it's a huge luxury to feel that way, which is why it's so funny that you don't feel that way at all. You feel the weight of this void on you. And uh, for me, it's, you know, obviously very personal, you know, a personal experience. Like I wouldn't say it applies down the board, but I do have this nagging feeling when I think about interests, when I think about hobbies, when I think about different activities, things that I used to care about. And I look at them and I think, Oh, it's over. The show's over. 
And that's not a depressing thought, you know. That's not a thought that says like, oh, you know, it's over in a bad way. It just, it's a matter of what's relevant. And there's, you know, the AI scenario, I brought it up before, where the idea that a... It's one of the, the sort of hypothetical scenarios people make about AI gone out of control or machines gone out of control, which is that, oh, you program a machine to make paper clips, and then it develops autonomy. But because its purpose is to create paper clips, it starts turning everything into paper clips. It starts turning the entire world into paper clips. And we operate that way too. It's like once we are programmed to do something, we see everything through that lens. And in a way, we put everything in that context or turn everything into that. You see it with people who run businesses. Or if you've ever worked for somebody who runs their own business, who started the company, it's an amazing thing. You know, you don't have to love business. You don't even have to love the, the industry that they work in. But sometimes it's amazing to think this was just an idea somebody had and they made it happen. And I'll always respect that. But where that runs into trouble is if you've known somebody like that or worked for them like I have, you realize at some point that every single thing you do with this person, they're going to relate it to the business. And, you know, an example is a boss that I had who did that. He started his own business. It was successful. He had a bunch of employees. He wanted to be friends with everybody. You know, and he would he would organize get-togethers and buy people drinks. And it made people uncomfortable because as nice as it was, there was always sort of the looming shadow of work. Like it always felt like you couldn't separate it from work. Even though you weren't having to work while you're hanging out. It still, it always felt like it was there. And a lot of it had to do with his presence. And it reached a point where people who worked there started organizing their own get-togethers because everybody liked each other. Everybody had a great time hanging out. And it wasn't just work-centric. It wasn't a bunch of people who were just obsessed with the job. It was a bunch of people who genuinely liked each other. And I can say that about those people now. I genuinely liked them, most of them. And even the ones that I didn't really like, I mean, I like them too. You know, there might have been one or two over many years that I didn't really care for. But for the most part, everybody was cool. Everybody was fun. Have drinks with them, go on little adventures. But it was like when the boss was there, it's like you, you couldn't... It wasn't that he was going to hold you accountable. It wasn't that he was judging you. It wasn't that what you said or did would impact you negatively on Monday. It was that it was all kind of channeled through work. Like, even though it was nice for him to buy you drinks and everything, there was, there was something to that. You know, like that, him simply putting it on the company tab or whatever it was, it kind of transformed the situation. And it wasn't even that he talked about work all the time, but you just, it, it, it kind of, it, you'd put up a guard. And his feelings ended up very hurt when he found out that his employees were hanging out without him because we were very much his social life during that time. But, you know, I, I remember at the time, 
thinking like, you know, what grounds does he have to be upset? You know, coworkers at every single job get together and hang out. People who work at a restaurant together, when they're off hours, they hang out and they drink and they, they party. And they don't, nobody thinks twice about whether or not to include the owner of the restaurant in that. But because this guy had kind of tried to facilitate that at our company and he wanted to be a part of it, his feelings were hurt. And I totally get why the guy's feelings were hurt. But he, you know, and he, and he was, you know, in his 40s, I think in his mid 40s. But I remember like wishing, oh, you know, I wish that he had the ability to see that this is a good thing and not at his expense. You know, there might have been something a little, there might have been a little element of like people not really liking him and that kind of thing, but it, it wasn't done at his expense. It was done because people genuinely enjoyed hanging out with each other. And when he was involved, it complicated things. It made it feel like, it, first of all, it, it brought that looming shadow of work to the situation. And you're always concerned about what he was gonna say, what you were gonna say. You know, it was just, it, it should be pretty obvious why there were little issues with that. But uh, I wish that he would have been able to say like, oh, you know, it's a great thing that the people who work for me genuinely like each other. And their get-togethers don't result in any added drama. These aren't melodramatic situations where everybody's dating each other or anything like that. Just people, they get together for drinks and they hang out and they talk. They have little parties. But he wasn't able to separate himself. He was, I don't think he was able to see that it was a good thing that people wanted to do that on their own. It showed that there was chemistry and good feelings, good regard among the employees. But it's one of those things too, where if work did come up, coworkers could kind of vent about it. You know, because people were invested in their jobs, but people need to vent. They need to express their opinions. And that can get out of control really quick, and it did sometimes. But the issue with the boss is like you couldn't do that around him. Like you couldn't make any casual remark around him about work or the company without him personalizing it. Because to him, everything was that company, and for good reason. You know, for good reason, he built it, he was the CEO. I understand why it was very personal to him. But that didn't mean that, you know, that didn't make things better. Like, even though I understood it, it didn't make anything better as far as he went, as far as socializing with him went. And it was difficult because even the most casual, innocent statement, you know, he might be like, well, what do you mean? Well, what does that mean? You know, I've mentioned the story on here about him, actually, because... Social media is another problem with that. When you're connected to your boss or your coworkers on social media, especially during the height of Facebook, like when everybody was on Facebook and using it every day and they were on it all day long, and you would just say things that are funny to you and it's separate from these other identities. Like it kind of forced, forced you, I mean, it put pressure on people to like kind of 
because you know compartmentalization is important as much as you know people talk about it being a problem like compartmentalizing your feelings or compartmentalizing different parts of your personality i'm someone who has to do that like there are parts of me the other you know relationships and situations i'm in don't need to really see or be a part of and we do that it's, it's why you act one way in front of your parents one way in front of your boss one way in front of your girlfriend ideally those all meet in the middle you know you don't have to be a serial killer who has this compartmentalized predator inside of you it could just be something like you joke about things you reference things you express yourself more candidly it's all pretty obvious why you would wear different masks and faces depending on who your audience was but social media created this weird situation where all of a sudden you know social media had always been something where you could pretty much freely express yourself it had been something that your peers looked at your friends looked at but all of a sudden your family your co-workers and people were wanting to be connected on there too and there's nothing wrong with that on its own but it opened up the door to you know seeing different sides of people and uh, I mean, your boss looking at your social media profile, I mean, it's obvious why some people wouldn't allow that. Because in my situation, you know, when I told this story before, it was my immediate supervisor brought in a bunch of Halloween decorations for our office. And that included, it was just like hokey Halloween de decorations. And one of them was a plastic skull. It was kind of lifelike. You know, it was kind of a lifelike skull, but it was a Halloween decoration. It was something from the Halloween store, a plastic skull made to look somewhat lifelike. And I had taken a picture of it on my desk, and I didn't plan it, but there was a company t-shirt underneath it. Like somebody had given me a company t-shirt. We didn't have uniforms, but they had printed off these t-shirts. So I had the company t-shirt folded on my desk with the logo visible. And I just set the skull on top of that. I didn't even think about placement. We were just kind of having fun putting Halloween decorations out. Just a silly thing. And I put the skull on top of the company t-shirt and I took a picture of it and I, I just wrote, work for death, not to death. There was no deeper meaning to that. The joke, if I had to explain it, the joke was like, Oh, I'm working for the Grim Reaper. I didn't mean that I'm actually employed. Like, I wasn't relating that to my actual workplace. I wasn't relating that to my actual experience of working where I worked. It was just, it was a hallow. It was seriously a Halloween joke. Work for death, not to death. You know, basically, like, like work for the Grim Reaper. Kind of thing. I don't know. It really had nothing to do with anything. It, it was seriously a stupid joke. I don't think it's particularly funny or witty. And coworkers saw it, and that's what they thought. They got it. They were smart people. They got that it was just sort of a, a silly little Halloween joke. And then, like a weekend passed, and I ran into the seat. I ran into the CEO in the hallway, and he was very stern and he was very solemn. He had a very solemn look on his face, like a furrowed brow. He looked concerned, and he was like, hey, I saw that thing you posted. And he was a very touchy-feely kind of guy. He liked to talk things out. He's like, I saw that thing you posted, and, you know, with the skull, what did that mean? He's like, that thing about, you know, not, 
you know, working for death, not to death. And I was like, oh, it was just a Halloween joke. You know, my supervisor brought in Halloween decoration, just making a little Halloween joke. And he was like, I didn't get it. I don't get it. And I said, oh, there's nothing to get. Just kind of a silly Halloween joke. And it was evident, though, that he read into it. Like, he didn't get it. And, and I think it cl he closed by saying, like, I guess I, I just don't see the humor in it. And he was a guy who was weird about death, too, despite the industry he worked in and being a middle-aged guy. He was one of those guys who's, who was having a, a lot of difficulty with the aging process. He really didn't accept that he was getting older. He was very uncomfortable with subjects like death. Wasn't something that like you would think about. Oh, what? What's he like? Well, he's really uncomfortable with death. You know, it's not like something you wouldn't describe him that way offhand. But it was evident that like the subject of mortality and all that was something he doesn't find humor in. So I mean, that probably played a role. I, you know, I don't even. I don't want to read into him reading into it. But it was just one of those situations where you're like, oh boy, oh boy. You know, here, here he is, he's thinking too hard about this, and he, he's seeing a conspiracy where it doesn't exist. You know, because it was on Facebook, I was connected to all my coworkers. I remember a bunch of my coworkers liked it. A bunch of my coworkers liked the post. He probably looked at that and was like, him and all my employees hate me. And they, this is about how he, they think I'm working them to death. And it seems like they're calling me death, work for death. You know, who knows what he interpreted that as. I think it just broke his brain. But I, I immediately went into my office and I was like, okay, well, I, I set it up to hide every single future post from him, no matter what it was. I made it so he couldn't view my, like, I, I didn't defriend him because that could create potential issues. But I made it so that he couldn't look at a single one of my posts ever again, past or present. I was like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's all I needed. That's exactly why you can't be social media friends with your boss. But, uh, you know, and, and that's a good example of why people didn't really want to hang out with him, too. It's not that they hated him. It's not that they didn't like him on some level. It's just that when you hang out with your boss, that's a part of it. But what got me going on this was the paperclip thing. And... You know, kind of like the AI machine who's programmed to make paper clips that eventually turns the entire world into paper clips. It sees everything as a potential paper clip. He saw everything as a potential business idea. And that became evident to me too when I first started working there, where you'd be having drinks at a, at a happy hour or something, and you'd make a joke about something, and then he'd be like, oh, we could use that for the business. Oh, we could use that for the business. You know, everything was like, we could use that for the business. Or it gives him an idea for the business. So you couldn't even talk casually about something without him turning it into a paperclip. Without him turning it into something that connects to the business. And that mindset is probably why he's, he was able to start this company and develop it into what it was. A business that could employ people. That could pay people salaries. You know, that, that mindset, it's not all bad. But there's a time and a place for it. But I noticed that with creative people as well. Where when someone's creative, like if someone has a band, for example, and it's their band, 
they see everything in that context. Like they're now in the business of making paper clips and because paper clips are important to them, that's their motivation. It's hard to separate that from everything else. Like everything becomes something that relates to the band. Everything becomes something they can use. It's cre you know, creative people do that. It's one of the difficulties of being close to creative people. And I'm guilty of this. I know this subject very well because I've been this person, which is that everything becomes source material. It's true for comedy as well. You know, I imagine if you have a friend who's a stand-up comedian, they're constantly thinking of joke ideas. And I imagine you know, just having a conversation with them, the wheels in their brain are turning because they turn the world into jokes. They're a joke machine. They're a, com a professional comedian. Their paper clips are jokes. And that's why they're good at what they do. But there's, there's a time and a place where you don't want somebody to do that. There's a time and a place where you don't want to be the person doing that. You don't want everything to become a product of your motivation. And, uh, you know, I was talking about social media recently where when you're not using it regularly, you take less pictures. Like when you know that there's a platform, because I was thinking like you didn't, even when I got a digital camera as an older teenager, whenever it was, I would sometimes deliberately take it out with me. Like if my friends and I were going on an adventure, I might bring my digital camera and I'm glad I did. But it wasn't something you carried around with you all the time. And your platform as to you know what you're gonna do with those photos was very limited. But then now that we all have phones and we all have platforms for doing things with photos, you can turn everything into that. You can t turn every situation just going to the store becomes an opportunity to produce content. And I noticed this when I was on my weird Minecraft dive, when I was talking about that very successful Minecraft kid, I watched a video of him and his friends, him and these other kids who have gotten rich and famous through Minecraft. And it was just them hanging out in England. And they, they seemed like really nice kids. I didn't watch it and go, oh my God, look at these freaking rich Minecraft kids. Oh God, look at them. They were fine. They just seemed like kids hanging out. But I did notice one little thing, which was there was one point where like one of them did something stupid or said something stupid and it was like, oh, that was stupid. And then the other kid was like, oh no, but it'll make great content. And I was like, oh yeah, that's on their minds. That's on their minds. Like they're hanging out and they're videotaping it because they are these YouTube Minecraft celebrities. But, you know, part of the motivation is um, they're also thinking content, paper clips. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is that's, a, that's an issue. And, and that's something we've all experienced in the age of social media or where you're at a party and there's somebody who's a little more preoccupied with taking photos or taking a group photo. And I, I, have a, I, I have a great appreciation for those friends who make it a point to take photos. Like I think back about like when I was much more socially active and having a friend who commemorated it with photographs. 
That was really cool, and I look back on that, and I'm like, I'm glad that I have a photo of that. But there is a side to it where someone's too focused on that, and you can you can kind of feel what their motivation is. Like you can tell that they want to take photos at this event so they can post them. It's not just about remembering it. It's not just because you know, as part of the whole, um, as as part of my whole like anti phone shaming you know, view. I think you can participate in the moment while taking photos and doing things to kind of... I, I think you can do these kind of meta activities and still be in the moment. Because, you know, that, that was a popular argument a few years ago, which is that, oh, when you're, uh, when you're too busy documenting an event, you don't participate in it. Well, some people participate in an event by documenting it. You know, I don't think that takes you out of the moment or anything. I think there's people who aren't doing anything who aren't in the moment. And I feel like thinking about the moment is what removes you from it. You know, so someone who's just naturally wanting to take photos and that kind of thing is something else. But when you can feel what the motivation is, when you can feel the motivation is like I have a phone and a, and a platform for posting photos. So I'm going to take photos at this party so I can post them. It's like that's a form of turning things into paper clips for me. And I've noticed that since I'm not looking at social media at all in recent months, I'm not taking photos. Not as many. Like, I take photos of Baddie, but I'm not taking any photos of myself. When I go to the store, I don't even think about if I see something, you know, it's kind of weird or beautiful for that matter. You know, my brain doesn't even go to that place where I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I should take a photo of this. Because wanting to take a photo of these things is kind of like, you see it as kind of a product that you can use. And uh, so I, I relate to this idea a lot myself, the idea that the AI machine that turns everything into paper clips. And that's its purpose. That, that keeps it going, that keeps it moving. And that's important to remember about all these things. You know, people need things like that to focus on if they are passionate about it. Like a creative person who, who sees everything as potential creative material. You know, the YouTube personality who's hanging out with a bunch of kids and thinks, oh, wait, no, don't worry about it. That'll make great content. You know, that kind of thing. There's something kind of sick about it, but it's also kind of what makes them what they are. It's what makes them successful. It's, it's what makes them driven. It, it's their motivation speaking. But, uh, you know, I'm not feeling that at all. You know, I'm not feeling much of anything at all. And that feels good in a way. It's kind of scary, but it also feels good in a way to be doing things and to not see them that way. Like, I have an unfinished drawing... But right now, I look at it, and I'm just like, you know, it's almost done. It'd be cool to finish it. But, uh, you know, it, it really doesn't even feel relevant. It doesn't feel like something I need to do. And uh, it's, it's not a, a depressive lack of motivation, because that's, that's a different feeling. It's a different feeling to be too depressed to do the things that you would normally do. But uh, when you have some sort of primary motivation like that, whether it's business, creativity, 
just expression, you know, some sort of platform. That's basically what it is. When you have some sort of platform for what you do, you know, you either channel everything through that or you replace it with something else that you can then channel things through. Like the machine who's programmed to make paper clips, you know, if you tell that thing to stop making paper clips, it's going to be like, well, what else am I going to do? This is my purpose. This is my reason for being. So you have to program it to do something else. But what happens if you don't do that? What happens if you don't replace it with something else? And I don't know that you can completely do that. Because, you know, even someone who joins a monastery starts living for God. They start living for, you know, the sanctity of all life. But they do often renounce things. And I think that process of renunciation is very interesting. Because I don't really believe in renouncing. I'm not a renouncer. Like when I stop doing something... It's usually just the process of realizing it's not good for me. Or it's um, just a loss of, a natural loss of interest. There's no need to renounce it. You can quit doing something without renouncing it in the process. And by quitting doing it, you're actually doing something far greater for yourself than verbally renouncing it, than ritualizing it, than formally some sort of formal renunciation. But it's very attractive because, you know, that renunciation is a form of replacing your previous programming. Like the, the AI machine that makes paper clips, it could just stop making paper clips. But given we're talking about a machine here, it needs to do something. It needs to be reprogrammed to do something else. Otherwise, it's useless. Otherwise, it has no purpose. And so, in a way, you know, reprogramming that machine is sort of a renunciation of making paper clips. It's like someone who quits drinking has to renounce it. And most people do who do that. A lot of people do. When you lose interest in something, truly lose interest, like you know you're never going to have taste in it again, you often renounce it in some form. It's why when you see teenagers go through phases, they don't just go through phases, they often renounce their previous phase. Like they get into pop punk and then they move on to quote-unquote real punk then they renounce pop punk like it's not real punk that stuff sucks because that process of renunciation reaffirms your new identity it reaffirms your new motivation your new programming you reprogram yourself by not just stopping doing something and letting go of it but by actively Denouncing, because denounce, renounce, obviously similar words. 
and maybe some of the examples I just gave are, you know, better described as denouncing, denunciate, denunciation, whatever word is. But those things are obviously connected, and a lot of people renounce by denouncing. Getting confusing with the words here. But it's hard not to do that. It's hard not to replace, it's hard not to renounce. Sometimes it feels better just to kind of let it naturally wither. And your know, sacrifice is important because where a lot of that comes from too is this idea of sacrifice. Where in order to get to the next level or the next place, you think that you need to sacrifice something. You need to sacrifice a part of yourself. By quitting drinking, you're sacrificing alcohol. You're sacrificing the part of you that drinks alcohol. When you get into a new interest, when you exchange one interest for another, maybe you sacrifice that previous interest. When the machine gets programmed to make something else other than paper clips, you sacrifice paper clips. <laughs> Paperclip Sacrifice. That's another one of my bands. We're called the Paperclip Sacrifice. But, uh... It's interesting, though, when you're in a place... Because, you know, I felt like I've been in a place of sacrifice. I definitely have been. You know, it's relative. You know, we all have different versions of what sacrifice means to us. But speaking for myself, like I've definitely been in a place where I'm sacrificing certain things in recent months. You know, some of that's just selling things. Like I've accumulated objects, I've accumulated possessions. I'm trying to generate some cash and things like that. And it's weird to look at things and, and where your impulse is like, oh yeah, you know, I don't want to get rid of that. I've had that for a long time and it has, you know, either some, you know, sentimental value or uh, I still kind of like it. But if you didn't like it, there would be no sacrifice. Like if you didn't if you didn't feel something, there would be no sacrifice to that. There'd be no material sacrifice. You'd just be giving something away you don't want. It would be worthless to you. So in order for something to be a sacrifice, it has to have some worth. Like getting rid of an album that you feel nothing toward, that you might not even like, that's not much of a sacrifice. But if you like an album, or have any attachment to it whatsoever for whatever reason, getting rid of it is a sacrifice. It qualifies. That's something I, I, you know, it's kind of new to me, honestly. Like, I, I don't think I've had to sacrifice that much in my life. Not that that's the only thing. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of things that I feel like I've... I'm going to cross the road here. There's a lot of things that I feel like I've had to sacrifice in the last couple of years. And not just the things that everybody's had to sacrifice because of the state of the world. Just personal things. Beliefs. And sacrifice sounds so severe, but it's often a very subtle process, too. And in order to get to a new place, you often do have to sacrifice something. 
you know, you can ritualize that. You know, we, we have a tendency to ritualize all these words, like sacrificing something before an altar. You think about tribes who sacrifice people. We have to satisfy the gods by sacrificing human beings to them. Meanwhile, what's going on all the time? People are dying in your tribe. People get old, they get sick, something happens to them, an accident, and they die. Is that not a sacrifice to the gods too? Do you have to put somebody on an altar and stab them to bloodlet in order to sacrifice somebody to the gods? Is not people just dying? Is that not a sacrifice to the gods too? Is there not a more long-form and subtle process playing out that achieves the same result? Quick little break there. But, uh, you know, and that, I, that relates to the changing of the seasons too. A deep. I'm getting real deep here. But it's true. I mean, you can't have spring and summer at the same time. Even though there is a transition, even though at the end of winter you can feel spring starting to emerge before it's officially spring, it is one of those situations where, you know, spring re replaces winter. And there is a cutoff, at least the way that we've framed it. And I don't always agree with the cutoff. But there is a point in time where I officially recognize that it's not winter anymore. There is a point in time where I go, yeah, that feeling of winter is gone. Now I'm just in spring. It's just here. And you could say winter has been sacrificed. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But uh, it is part of it. It is part of the way we frame it, at least. Where it's like winter is gone so that spring can be here. You, know, you can't have two seasons at once somehow. For some reason, our world just isn't set up that way. There's no two seasons at once. So, for any kind of change, you know, on an, on an earthly level, something has to change. Something has to be given up. And we respond the same way ourselves physically. You know, me not being able to wear a hoodie today. Like, I'm out for a, a night walk. Two nights ago, I was shivering. Two nights ago, I was out around the same time, and I was shivering. And I was wearing a hoodie and a jacket. Tonight, I'm not. Tonight, I'm just in a jacket. I feel fine. I even feel a little bit warm just wearing a jacket right now. But, you know, we, we shed our winter clothing. We sacrifice our winter clothing to the closet. To the closet. Because as above, so below. Here we are. We're getting real deep, right? But uh, as above, so below, where you know, nature stops being able to do the things that it was doing even just a month ago. And you respond in kind. You change what you're doing. You change your mindset. You change what you wear. And it's not a coincidence that people often get rid of their previous clothing. The changing of the seasons is also a time where 
people get rid of old clothes they're not going to need anymore. They think like, oh, I, I wore this jacket this winter, but it's pretty worn down. I think by next winter, I'm probably not going to wear this same jacket. So it's kind of funny to me that people do get rid of things. They don't just change what they're wearing. They actually get rid of things. And so we're in that mindset all the time. But when we do it deliberately, when it involves our very identity, it starts to tread on slightly different ground. Especially when your identity has been formed by certain behaviors or interests. You know, when those change, you, you, or, you know, when that shifts, you hold on to things. You know, if your personality has been defined by a certain jacket you wear, it's going to be harder to get rid of, right? Same thing for, you know, having certain interests or doing certain activities where if you think that you depend on one thing, like let's go back to creativity or a business or anything that, you know, gives somebody motivation. But if you're a creative person and you've seen the entire world through the lens of that creative project or that creative idea, if you've turned the entire world into paper clips in that way, it's harder to get rid of that. Because you think like, who, you know, because so much of what we do is avoiding the existential crisis of having no identity. And you can end up really boring. You know, you can end up really boring. I mean, I was thinking about a friend, a friend's planning on visiting me soon. And I was like, what am I even going to talk about anymore? I have plenty to think about and talk about. We talk about everything under the sun, but I was, it's, it's funny, like those little things that you would use as a crutch almost. Like you, there's some people you go over to their house and you know that a part of that process is like them playing you records. Oh, have you heard this one? Oh, you see, I got this? And that's wonderful. I love that. It's the same reason I love it when Batty shows me a toy or someone new comes over and Batty shows them his favorite toy. I'm not trivializing it by saying that. I actually... I celebrate when Batty comes running into the room with his favorite toy. It's not trivial at all to me. It's actually, it makes my day. It's a big deal to me. I feel the same way when someone that I care about cares about something and wants me to see it or hear it or whatever it is. And I do that too. But it's weird when you don't feel that. It's weird when that doesn't matter to you. When you think, like, that doesn't actually matter to me anymore. And that person can matter to you. But it's interesting how, like, when, when it doesn't matter to you, like, when, it, when an interest or something doesn't matter to you, and you, if you tell somebody that who's, who's still interested in that, it's hard for them not to have kind of a personal response. Like if you're talking to a friend about debt metal, you're talking to a friend about debt metal, debt metal, and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just not really that into that anymore. And if they're still into that, they might be like, what? 
they they almost feel like they're do you're telling them they're doing something wrong because we're so used to people when they shift gears or they change for it to be this process of renunciation and denunciation where it's like oh if that person's telling me they're not into that anymore they must be denouncing it and because i'm still into it they must be denouncing me not always true but it's very hard not to personalize that Because we expect that of people for good reason. Like when someone stops doing something, we expect them to kind of do it with a little bit of spite or judgment. And in life, learning how to not do that is so important. Learning how to make good decisions for yourself, any decision at all but not doing it with judgment or spite you know it's one of the the hardest things to do because having spite or judgment is often what motivates us and gives us a new identity it's why so many people who quit drinking no matter how hard they try and i've had conversations with people no matter how hard they try when they quit drinking their new identity is based on that and it's very difficult for them to not frame alcohol or drinking or drinkers in a negative light and to talk about them that way. Even if they try not to, even if philosophically they think about how there's no judgment, they understand. I've come across this with other people who have quit drinking where I just notice they make little comments They'll make little comments. Something as simple as like, if you talk to a drunk person, like if a friend of you, if you, if you quit drinking and a friend of you call, calls when they're drunk. And I have a very, my standard for that is very simple. I only care if they're repeating themselves in too short of intervals. Because I've had that happen where like a friend who's drunk calls me and I'm sober. And I, it doesn't bother me one bit that they're drunk. The only thing that is tiresome is if they tell you a story and then a minute later they tell you the same story. Because then you're not even having a conversation. And I used to do that to people when I was drunk. I would get hung up on some idea and I would bring it up repeatedly throughout the night. And it's just, it's boring and you're not having a conversation. That's just a, that's practical though. That's just like, oh yeah, this is, I'm, we're wasting our time here. But the actual process of talking to a drunk person, you know, doesn't bother me one bit. As long as they aren't, you know, belligerent or anything and, and mad at me, it really makes no difference to me who I'm talking to at that moment. Or it, it makes no difference to me, like, what condition somebody's in. But I know that other people who have quit drinking will say, like, oh, God, like, they, they have a huge problem talking to people who are drunk, and that's their right. But they, they'll approach it from that point of view where it's like, it's a burden on them or they have some level of judgment toward that person for being drunk and acting like a drunk person. You know, it's hard not to be, it's, it's hard for them to not be um, a little bit disturbed by it.
But uh, for me, I, you know, it really doesn't make a difference. It's just, it's knowledge. Like if a friend calls you drunk, I have a friend, he was drunk the other night. He'd been at a bar for nine hours and he called me. And I, I was more than happy to talk to him. I enjoyed it. It was fun. But I was aware of the fact that he was drunk. You know, I was aware that that was who he was in that moment. I wasn't thinking about who he is when he's not drunk. I was just aware of the fact that he was drunk and he was, he was acting like a drunk person. But I don't need anything else. It's just, it, that's just awareness and knowledge. It's just like, oh yeah, this guy's drunk. Nothing else to it. I'm not... I'm not judging the quality of the conversation based on that. Like I said a second ago, you know, just if it reaches a point where he's repeating himself in very short intervals, well, that's just a low quality conversation. There's people who aren't drunk who do that. There's people who don't drink at all who tell you the same thing over and over again. I do it on here. And I'm, I can tell you I'm not drunk when I do it. It's just like a tick. It's like something stuck in your head. But, uh, you know, people on their birthday do that. Like, someone who, who goes out to a bar on their birthday and gets hammered, if you ever notice, they, they go up to everybody and they're like, it's my birthday. And you're like, oh, awesome. And they're just sitting there at a table with you and they're like, it's my birthday. Dude, it's my birthday. Like, they'll just say that over and over again. It's funny. They just, their brain gets stuck on something and they're excited about it. But anyway, I know that for me personally, it's like, it's exciting to think about what do you have when you've given up the things that you think make you who you are, that you've been carefully cultivating and crafting for a lifetime. It's almost like somebody who gets a head injury and forgets everything. Sometimes I think you have to deliberately do that. But it'll also subtly happen if you let it, too. You know, you can relate to that to somebody who's afraid of growing older. Like, they're constantly looking for tricks. They're constantly looking for ways to make themselves seem younger. And almost all of them don't work. Like, somebody who's aging and gets plastic surgery stands out more. And you don't think they're younger. People who get too much plastic surgery, you're actually more aware of their age than you would be if they simply looked old. You know, you look at them and, and you just think like, I'm thinking way more about the fact that you're old. Someone who tries to be younger than they are, rather than just letting the subtle process happen. Because what they're doing is they're clinging on to their previous identity. They're unwilling to sacrifice their youthful appearance because they think that's them. An old person who doesn't want to grow old thinks that who they are when they who they were when they were younger is who they truly are. And you know what they were? They were that person. But there's nothing you can do to keep it. There's a subtle process of change playing out. And one of the sacrifices is that by growing older, you sacrifice a certain amount of your youth. 
and it doesn't hit everybody equally. But the more you, more effort you put in to trying to reverse that sacrifice, sacrifice reversal, the more effort you put into that, the more obvious it's going to be that you're doing it. The more obvious it's going to be that you are an old person trying to stay young. And you become like the AI paperclip machine because a lot of your life suddenly becomes that. You notice that with older people who are trying to stay young, how they turn everything into that. They repeat quotations, platitudes to themselves about, you know, being, being young is a mindset. They do th they wear clothes. When they go out to the mall, they choose clothes that younger people would wear. They're constantly trying new diets. They're constantly thinking like, oh, if I eat this, it helps you maintain a youthful appearance. When they're trying to get into something, like music or movies or pop culture, they'll seek things out that make them seem younger. They're turning everything into a paperclip. In this case, though, they're trying to turn everything into youth. Every decision they make becomes youth-oriented. I want to dress like a young person. I want to, you know, take in pop the pop culture of young people. I want to eat in a way. I want to have a diet that helps me, me maintain my youth. I'll even pay a lot of money to get surgeries that make me look younger. They're turning everything into paper clips when they do that. Their motivation becomes youth. When they look in the mirror, that's what they're thinking about. Even when it comes to uh, you know choosing a choosing relationships, they might try to hang out with younger people. Might try to date younger people. Interesting how that works. Interesting how that becomes such a preoccupation. It becomes such a central motivation. But people don't respond kindly to it. They judge them far worse than they would if that person just accepted growing old. That person's not willing to sacrifice youth, so they manufacture it. But it comes across inauthentic, it comes across artificial, because it is, it's artificial youth. And it's obviously a struggle. It's not something I'm making fun of. Because when you actually think about that, when you actually think about how many people are doing that and how focused they are on it, it's incredibly sad. And, you know, whatever someone's motivated by gets sucked into the orbit of that thing. It's why, like, when you meet somebody or a friend of yours meets somebody, they, they have a new relationship, you start to notice them being interested in different things, talking about different things. Their identity starts to change sometimes, and you go, huh, what's going on? You might not know what the backstory is right away, but you notice that there's something going on. Because they're now motivated by this new relationship. It becomes their new purpose. So everything gets channeled into that. I've seen that happen with friends I've had. 
where you notice them talking about doing things and not even just things that they're doing with that person, but they actually take on those interests. Like I remember a girl I was friends with started dating a guy or she was interested in a guy, whatever the situation was. And he was, he liked to go to the shooting range. He liked certain movies and games. And I remember before I knew what was going on, I just remember she kept bringing those things up. She kept saying like, oh, you know, I'm going to the shooting range, not with him. Like she would get other people, other girls and stuff to go with her. And I just noticed that her entire point of view shifted, like her entire focus shifted onto these things. And I'd known her for a while and we'd been good friends. And it wasn't like she was just trying to impress him, although I think part of it was probably, you know, making her, her, she was probably making herself more compatible with him or making herself seem more compatible with him. But I just noticed that like everything she thought of, I mean, there's a classic joke. Like I remember my sister had a friend when she was a teenager who started dating some guy and she had to stop hanging out with her because the girl, they'd be like sitting there at a park and the girl would like look at a tree and be like hey that tree reminds me of robert like that tree reminds me it's like everything she saw became a reminder of of her new boyfriend and she didn't even realize she was doing it but it's funny because i still remember my sister complaining about it she was like oh yeah we went we went to such and such we went to this place with with so and so and everything that she saw, like everything that she did, reminded her of him. And that's just when she's on her own with her friends. That's not even just the things that she's doing, the way that her interests are shifting. You know, that's paperclip syndrome. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's exactly what it is. Like, she's been programmed a certain way. And I'm sure, you know, that was... 28 years ago or something. That's probably like almost 30 years ago. I really doubt that girl stayed with that guy forever. They probably dated for a year at most. I doubt that she sees trees and they still remind her of Robert. But you can see the way people do that with relationships where they reprogram themselves to the next thing. Like my friend who was interested in this guy kind of dated him briefly and all of her entire, you know, everything got pulled into that orbit, into that way of seeing things. That was temporary. Those new interests, those new preoccupations, when it was over, those got sacrificed for something else. You know, it was on to the next thing. I think eventually she found somebody who was more compatible with her in terms of her interests. Because that's the thing, in that situation, not to go off into the relationship spiral, but in that situation, you know, as a guy, I've never met a girl and been like, well, I really hope she's into everything I'm into. I really hope that she shares all of my interests. And if I notice her taking them on unnaturally, it freaks me out. Which is why, like, you want to find someone that you have some compatibility with. Not that I should give relationship advice, but it's like, you want some compatibility. But I'm, I'm a firm believer in his and hers. I'm a firm believer in his and hers. You know, there's a reason why master bedrooms have two sinks. 
and different soap shelves that say his and hers on them. Because that guy who was into the shooting range, maybe the shooting range is where he goes with his friends or where he wants to go by himself. It might not, I, I doubt that guy's living his life thinking, oh, you know, you know what I'm really missing? What I'm really missing is a girlfriend who goes to the shooting range with me. The shooting range might be his. That might be his place that he goes. And you don't necessarily need to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, there, there's codependent couples who have to do everything together, which is a different story. But I am a firm believer in his and hers, like having your own space, your own interests, the things that you do with your friends or by yourself. And I've never once thought like, oh yeah, a girl needs to do the things I do or share my interests. And in my case, it would be freaking weird to even find that. But it's not something that they need to accept that you do that. And that it's important to you. But, you know, there's, there's no need to, um, to merge those worlds, you know. And, uh, you know, when someone does that, like when everything starts to orbit around a new relationship, you see where those people, it, it, it goes away just as easily. And they fill the void with somebody else or something else. Johnny was into the shooting range and watching NBA basketball. So you're into that while well, he's into that. Every tree reminds you of Johnny. But guess what? You know, now you, now you know Joe. Now you're into Joe. Things didn't work out with Johnny. Now you're into Joe. And he's into the NFL. And bird watching, great combo. That's me. <laughs> I mean, it turns out Joe is just me into the NFL and bird watching. But uh, you know, now that's what you're into, and you sacrifice all the things Johnny was into that you took on. You know, you shift your identity. That's that's a lot like somebody clinging to youth. You know, that reminds me a lot of somebody who is preoccupied with staying young. Where they kind of channel everything through that lens. And it's very easy to see from the outside. You know, it's very easy to see that from the outside. And with relationships, again, this is the last thing I'll say about relationships say relationships but uh, that's one of the biggest identity crises that people go through and I've experienced that myself where it's like you break up with a girlfriend and a lot of your life revolved around that and you don't even know what to do with yourself there's relief You're, you no longer have the obligations you did you no longer have the problems you did with that person but there's a party that's like, I spent so much time focused on this. It was so built into my schedule. It was so built into what I do, to what I pay attention to, to who I am during that time, that not having that creates kind of an identity crisis. 
And if I've felt that, I can only imagine what other people feel. As someone who makes for a terrible boyfriend, because I don't merge at all, <laughs> you know, I feel bad for the girls I've dated because it's like, you're going to get very little union from me. You're going to get commitment. You're going to get um, loyalty, but you're going to get very little crossover. You're going to get very little union. And so if I felt like tinges of that identity crisis myself, I can only imagine what other people go through. And that's the reason why people say like, oh, I'm going to find myself. I'm going to spend some time alone before the next one. Well, you can always tell that's an issue right there. Before the next one. Before the next one. They're already anticipating the next one. So, you know, they're not really going to find themselves. And those are the exact people that find somebody else very quickly. And often the reason for that is because that identity crisis is too much to bear. Their motivation needs that other person, no matter who they are. And people who have been through the ringer, you know, people who have really been through the relationship ringer, They've been with a lot of people. They've, they've had a lot of committed relationships that don't work out. They do often resort, for, resort to something because it, it just becomes about finding that source of motivation again, finding that programming again. Because we... As the as like those AI paperclip machines, we feel like if we're not programmed towards something, if we don't have some primary motivation or goal, we're just going to sit there like a abandoned machine. But that's what makes us different from those AI paperclip machines, which I don't even know if those exist. Some hypothetical scenario somebody else has talked about. I don't know anything. But we do feel that way, like we're, if we make a sacrifice, that sacrifice has to be so that something else can take its place. It has to be an exchange. If we undo our current programming, we feel like it has to be replaced with new programming. When I'm a firm believer in just not doing that, you have to be in a place where you can, otherwise you go crazy. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, like, some people who are chronically unemployed lose their minds and don't know what to do with themselves. They might have hated work, but not having that programming and structure and not having it replaced by something makes them malfunction. And uh, other people, though, you know, they, they already have something they're programmed toward. They already have something they're programmed to do. So it takes a different toll on them. It doesn't take a toll. It depends on how much of your identity depends on doing that thing. And what I'm finding is, you know, I don't know that mine depends on any of that now. We'll see. But right now I'm really coming to terms with the fact that it feels good to make sacrifices, to make changes, 
and to not feel the need to immediately replace those. To just sit on it and see what comes. Because when you've spent your whole life building up who you think you are, and so much of that is based on the things that you decorate yourself with, the things that you consume, the things that you're interested in, the hobbies you do, the activities you do, you know, you don't want to lose everything. You don't want to be dead. But when you naturally start to lose interest, just letting those go and realizing that, you know, I don't actually have to replace that with anything. And the world is full of enough stuff that if I hit a point where I say, oh shit, this is a little too empty. Well, there's plenty of stuff. There's plenty of stuff out there. And uh, I think that you should find some comfort and relief in that fact. Find some comfort and relief that when you sacrifice parts of yourself and you don't exchange them for something else, when you don't replace those with something else, there's no time limit. There's no lack of resources. And you're more likely to find things that fit naturally into who you are now. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.